Today's scripture is Genesis three fourteen through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between the offspring and her, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he, woman, he said, I will, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tr- of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall be eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You may be seated. Good morning again. Great to see you guys. Trust everyone had a happy Thanksgiving, uh, family and friends. And if you're not here, that you're still enjoying your time. So uh, if you're listening to the podcast later, we look forward to seeing you next week. Um, this week begins the celebration of Advent. Um, this is a season that for at least the last 1,500 years, the church has set aside to celebrate the incarnation of Christ, set aside to anticipate Jesus' coming. Uh, we do this by remembering um, vicariously the coming of Jesus through those who wrote about it. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take time walking through portions of the Bible um, to be able to look at what these authors wrote, um, the things they foretold via the Holy Spirit guiding them. And, um, and today we're going to start as we read in Genesis. And uh, we do this to again uh, to look to the incarnation of Jesus, and we invite you, your families, to do this along with us, not just on Sundays, but also um, at home. We are providing you with a resource, a study guide to do so. Uh, we weren't able to get them for you right here at the table, but if you go on our website today, you'll be able to download the PDF. Next week, we'll have a printed copy if you need it. Um, but we invite you to dig in, to dig into this, um, to this study and to um, take time daily with your families to walk through this season of Advent. And um, although this wasn't originally the case when Advent began, um, uh, we, we, after time, uh, time goes on, days pass, and it becomes more and more necessary for us to slow down during the Christmas season. The, the more the days go on, the more it becomes necessary. And, um, you know, I don't, if, it's crazy. I feel like just Christmas last year just happened, right? Um, my family, is, we, we still have decorations up from last year. And some may count this as laziness, but let them, um, because we have less to do this year. So um, that's our mindset in all of this. And, um, but it's crazy. The, 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 I, I don't know if, is this the case, those who are older than me do, is this a continuation? Is this a constant in life that the years, the calendar year just goes faster and faster every single year? Um, and, and, uh, and so as I get older, the older I get, the faster these years go. And, um, and even though that curse 
is there. There's also this blessing, and it's this, that every year Christmas seems to mean more to me, and, and I'm really thankful for that. But I don't count that as necessarily just age. Um, it can't be. It can't be just um, me getting older because I know plenty of adults living in just perpetual adolescence in life. And so the, the assumption cannot be that time alone makes you wiser, um, more conscious, more appreciative, or even capable of benefiting more from something that you enjoy, um, benefiting more now from something you enjoy than when you did when you were younger. There is a need in all of us to grow with purpose, with intentionality, to want to do so. Imagine traveling to, to Rome for a second, and you desire to go see the Colosseum, but you actually never go, and you decide you're content with just staying at the gift shops, and you indulge yourself with the fine craftsmanship of all the models of the Colosseum. You might even buy a photo of the real thing, and you say, everyone should experience this. What a sad delusion to live in to think that you actually saw Rome, right? And, but if you did decide to actually investigate the culture of Rome and all it's worth, you, you would never assume that you could possibly do so in one visit. If you've ever been, my wife and I had the privilege of doing so um, this past summer, it's impossible. We just went for one day and not even a whole day. And I mean, you just get just this sliver. You would never assume that you could possibly take it all in. No, if you wanted to investigate thoroughly, then you would need to expose yourself to the history then, the culture now, the day in and day out. Over time, you would understand the depths of what is actually in front of you. The richness of what you are actually seeing. And this, in many ways, is why we celebrate Advent. This is why the church has put it there as, a, as purpose, to emphasize an, an already understood reality that we believe and hope in, but with hopes to gain a greater clarity, a deeper understanding, a more rock-solid faith. So, I ask you a question. Church, would you, would you plunge into the season with us? Would you plunge in with you and your family? Would you ask God to reveal ways you might trust in Jesus more as your Savior? Ways you might trust in Him more as your Lord? Ways that you would more passionately follow after Him? This is why we've gathered. This is why we do this week to week, to know Him more, so that we might glorify Him more. Pray with me. God, this is your church. I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for this chance to be able to minister your word. Um, Holy Spirit, you must administer this word, though, to our hearts. You must awaken hearts. I pray that you would do that, starting with me, even as I share what I think I already know. God, would you remove the presuppositions, God, would you remove those things that I think I know and, and, and plant instead this infallible truth, this good news. God, do that for us today. I pray that you would come in power, that we would see you today, that we would trust more deeply, we would care for you and your kingdom more deeply and passionately. 
And this would all be unto your glory. Amen. Advent is Latin for the Greek word parousia. It means coming or arrival. The, earthly ch- or the early church, um, they look forward to Jesus, you know, very, um, to Jesus' second coming. Um, pretty naturally, right? Uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven or before he did, he said, I will, I will come again, right? And so this is very fresh and very new. And so they're like, okay, Jesus is coming. We're ready. We're going to be expecting. We're going to be waiting. Um, time went on. And somewhere around the Middle Ages, uh, there was this necessary shift to actually look back and remember, to, to put in a place. And what we have now is Advent. Um, and it's been called faith gazing in the rearview mirror. If you've ever driven a car, then you know that where you are headed is largely dependent upon not only what you see in front of you, but what is also behind you, right? You must be able to look behind you in order to, to really drive, It is the same, and in fact, and much more for the Christian to be able to know what lies behind us, to understand what lies in our past and our history, in order to understand how it um, informs our future. So, look back with me real quick. We read in Genesis. I'm going to kind of just give the context of this. You guys know the story. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things, all living things and non-living for that matter, including man and woman. Everything was good in God's eyes. But man and woman were very good, he says. God gave them a garden for their enjoyment. He walked with them in the cool of the day, the Bible tells us. God's full delight was in this man and this woman. And their full delight was in God. They had friendship. They had intimacy. They had immediacy with each other. The bounds of God's greatness, his glory, his majesty, his vastness were brought close and personal. And they were invited to know this God as one would know a father. The relationship was right. It was pure and it was eternal. It was built on joy and peace. In the greatest sense of the word, this relationship was good. To its very core, it was good. And there was another creature who did not delight in God. And in the form of a serpent, he went to the woman, he whispered lies into her ear, and therefore she doubted God's goodness, doubted God's faithfulness, doubted that he was a loving father, and she seemingly too easily gave in, right? Invited her husband to come alongside. He did very easily. We know the story. Because of the fallacy that the serpent delivered to the man and the woman, of God not being a good God, but rather a harsh, a cheap a mean God, they decided, I could be a better God than God. And they betrayed him. Now, this is, um, sorry, God goes and finds the man and woman, right? He goes out and he goes searching and in the cool of the day, as he normally does, he would go looking for the man and the woman. He can't find them because they're hiding. And upon finding them, And upon finding out what has happened, he casts this curse that we just read about. It's important to understand this truth when we we read about the curse and the judgment um, that God casts. And it is this, that God is blameless, that he is perfect, that he is holy, that he is right and true. He's the creator of all things and therefore he is above all things. 
He is not confined to law. He is law. And so therefore, he cast judgment perfectly. He cast this judgment perfectly. He starts with the serpent. There's much to say in these six verses, um, but, and for the sake of the context, we have read them, but I really want to hone in um, on what God says specifically to the serpent today. So read with me in verse 14 of chapter 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Okay, does this mean that snakes at one point were, had legs and they were walking upright, and now they started slithering on their bellies? No, this is an image of shame and humiliation. It's consistent with other portions of um, Scripture that um, say phrases such as, may his enemies lick the dust, and they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Um, this was a common um, phrase to be able to use, and it, and it signified shame, humiliation. Why? To the serpent, because this animal had harmed the Imago Dei, had brought harm to God's image, the image of God, the man and woman, the ones who he delighted in. And that's also consistent with other um, passages, passages in the Bible. In Exodus, we read about an ox, that if it, was, if it would degore a man, then he would be killed, the ox. And so, this was because it brought harm. Now, many of you um, don't like snakes, and that's okay with me. Um, I happen to like snakes. Um, I believe that all things will be made right, and that means that the curse towards this serpent um, will be overturned, and you too will like snakes one day, Micah. And uh, I could be wrong. I could be completely off on that, and uh, we can talk afterwards. Um, but the point here is that this is the current state of the animal. But read with me, um, now turning from the vessel to the person, God speaks directly to Satan in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, her offspring. He, being her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right in the middle of this curse, there's a startling reality for Adam and Eve and for us. There is hope. There is hope that paradise can be restored by grace. This is the first gospel. It's what's been called as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And it was first preached this way by post-apostolic fathers, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And it goes that the seed was translated, if you're reading the ESV, is offspring. This word seed, offspring, is Christ, who, although would be wounded on the cross by Satan, would land a worse blow, signified by the bruise on the head, by his glorious resurrection. Modern critics would say that this phrase, this passage right here, it says nothing more than just the ongoing perpetual conflict between snakes and man, but we, we know that this isn't true for three really good reasons. These are provided by commentator Kent Hughes. Um, three good reasons why this, that's not true, and that this is actually Jesus. One, starting in 250 BC, before Christ, Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Bible, the, T the Tanakh, into Greek, starting with the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They translated the word seed, or literally translated offspring in our Bibles, as a single individual. Now, 
these scholars who cannot possibly have any Christian presuppositions to bring to the text agreed that this was a future person. Scholars later, after Christ, they saw it otherwise, but the originals did not. Number two, anytime the word seed is used in the Bible, as it relates to offspring, it is always consistently used singular and is furthermore, the pronoun is always masculine. Third, this is sustained by Paul in Galatians 3.16, where he argues that God's promise to Abraham of offspring does not refer to many offspring, but to one, namely Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, upon these three things, we can rightly see this passage as God threatening Satan to, him, to his face of a coming assailant. This assailant and this threat is real and it's imminent. So this is the serpent. He turns to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's disobedience brought what in theological terms is called the fall, right? You've heard this term. This is not a fall as if you fell into a ditch and that you could get yourself out of. This is a fall from intimacy with God to complete separation, vastness from him. Think of the furthest away star or planet that you could think of. Honestly, I don't even know a name. Um, but if you know a name, think of it. If you don't, a hundred million light years away, right? Is that a number? Take that, times it by a thousand. That's what we're talking about, okay? The distance isn't even a factor at that point, right? When I, when I hear people um, talking about planets that are light years away, I just can't even fathom, okay? So distance isn't even a factor. This is the fall that has happened for mankind. Instead of acknowledging their wrongdoing, though, our first representatives— cast the blame to one another, and therefore God cast them out in, in righteousness out of the place that symbolized communion with him, the garden. He cast them out. And this has been the reality for mankind to come up until today, and it will be until Jesus returns. Many refuse to accept this inherited nature that we have, but C.S. Lewis has this tiny little quote and it's good. And it's a good reminder that we really need to look no further than our own selves. And it goes like this. We are fallen creatures and all are hard to live with. Maybe you don't believe that about yourself. Um, but one, you, maybe you haven't looked hard enough. Or two, maybe you haven't actually lived with anybody else. And so upon doing so, you might find that you are very hard to live with. We all are. And this is a result of our fallen nature. We don't want the harsh truth of what our history tells us. We don't. Even if we do accept it, we want the fall of man to be... I keep kicking over this bottle. I'm sorry. That's why I keep looking down. I'm moving it. Um, we want the fall of man to be a result of just like a simple answer we got wrong. Like we're on a game show and then we just start getting answers right. And then we'll make up for the points that we lost. And then we could get back into God's good graces. Friends, I can no longer, no more get closer to God by doing good things. And I can get closer to my wife if I've wronged her by doing good things. If I have yet to even acknowledge the fact that I've done something wrong, right? It makes no sense. We have trouble acknowledging our sin before God because we don't want God. We want to be like God just as our first representatives did. And they were nothing like God. Neither are you and I. Unlike God made flesh, 
who would come, they were cowards. They were self-centered. N.D. Wilson, author and thinker, he, 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 when, when I'm talking about this passage, he has this fantastic quote. I was given this this week um, by Micah, and I, and I want to read it to you. And it goes like this. Adam, living in his story rightly, would not have been the well-behaved Mormon teenager abstaining from the fruit. We like to think of him like that, right? He should have just abstained, Right? No, he would have looked at Eve, seen her curse, seen her enemy, gone after that serpent with pure and righteous wrath. He would have then turned to face the pure and righteous wrath of God himself that Adam had just imaged, and he would have said something quite simple, something that would be said by another thousands of years later, take me instead. Adam could have been a conqueror rather than conquered. Regardless, fallen or unfilled, he was born to die. So are you, and so am I. But God, being rich in mercy, pursues us, wants us, over and over again. God went after his children, and over and over again, the children of God would turn their backs on God. They would run the opposite way. They don't want God. The first gospel was the first of very many in the Bible that we can see. And if we look close enough, we'd find them. There's a really obscure story in the book of Numbers, and it's also about a serpent. And it's only six verses long. If you want to turn there, you may. It's Numbers 21, or you can just listen. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4, says, uh, the context here is the Israelites are traveling from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. And here it says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. (laughs) Sorry, that's funny. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, this is absolutely amazing to me. And if you haven't already caught some of the connections here, let me help you. The snakes in this story represent, um, they're a result of sin, right? They're a perfect representation, actually, of sin because a serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve, thereby bringing sin into the world. And it is a serpent's venom that has so marred us beyond recognition, our very nature, and all of us. Then the serpent is lifted on a pole. And it's not just a, a real serpent, right? It's actually a likeness of a serpent. And there's a significance in this, for if Moses had actually made a literal serpent, then the, um, the comparison, the symbolism, would actually not be as exact and perfect. For as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, Christ who was made to be sin for us. Romans 8.3, 
God sent his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and the whole passage, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the sin by becoming a curse for us. With all the, in the animal realm for God to choose, God chose the perfect representation, a serpent. This wasn't just chance. The cross shows our Lord taking the sins of the world upon himself, symbolized by the writhing serpent. Do you see, is your heart filled with praise at this? Is it too grand for you to believe that God would use such a situation, even the sin of our first representatives, Adam and Eve, and the sin and the situation of Israel, to their good and his glory, while simultaneously purposing it for faith the believers to come and the salvation of all God's chosen people? Is that too grand to believe? Is it too grand that God would use your situation, you, even your sin, for similar purposes. My heart at this says, be still. Be still. Know what your God has done. Know what your God is doing. Be still, my soul. Don't move so quickly past this. Be amazed by it. Be floored by it. The fact is, Jesus came. You, the promise of a coming Savior to bruise the head of the serpent happened. You don't really have to look any further. You go to Gospel of Matthew, look in the first chapter. You see the genealogy of Jesus. It lists them all out, right? 42 generations, 2,000 years later, the Messiah is born. And 30 years after his birth, he's standing in Jerusalem. He's talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he references this passage, this story of Israel. In John chapter 3, verse 14, starting in 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Is this just chance? Did Jesus look at this? Who was, Jesus, who was familiar with the Torah, he knew what it said. Did he take this and twist it? Did he make it so that, hey, this, I, I could play this off and make people believe that? Or do you, do you believe that? Or do you believe that God, who was before all time, all creation, destined and planned, he knew that man would fall away from him and he destined for this story in the desert? To use the likeness of a serpent. To point back to the original sin. To point forward to the coming Messiah. Is it too grand for you to to fathom, to believe? He continues on, and this is probably one of the most quoted passages of Scripture, right? Verse 16, for God so loved the world. And again, this is Jesus, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not, the, he is not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
Moses raised that serpent up high in the camp. All the dying Israelites had to do was look to that pole and be saved. No matter how horrible they were bitten, no matter how many times they had been bitten or how sick they were, the opportunity for salvation was there. Even the most degraded and miserable sinner who looked to Christ alone for salvation will be saved. This great grace had its origins and image in the first gospel in the garden. There was hope presented. Here's, here's the astonishing thing. Jesus, he, he came, he did not point the finger as Adam pointed the finger at Eve and Eve pointed the finger at the serpent. You and I point the finger at each other or past circumstances or present circumstances, what we have or what we're not afforded. No, Jesus became the willing victim. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He became the willing victim. He became the better Adam. Will you look to Jesus today for salvation? Will you trust in him? Will you repent? Will you follow him with all that you have? And Jesus came in the most unlikely form, did he not? There was this obscure town that he was prophesied to be uh, born in, Bethlehem. And we could find Mary, Joseph, if we were there, knocking door to door, trying to find a place with this newborn infant. Can't find anything. The only place they find is this, what is called a stable out back somewhere. This is a stable. It's, it's a, a place to house animals. Animals, right? Like disgusting, dirty, nasty animals. I, I, have you guys ever been in a barn before? I grew up in a barn, or not in a barn. <laughs> Clarify. I grew up with a barn in my backyard because you would not want to stay in a barn. And you wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to stay in a barn. Not in the 21st century, much less 2,000 years ago, right? This is where Jesus was born. And this is a conclusion. It's drawn from the very limited, actually, information we have in the, the Gospel of Luke. Um, it says these words, that in a stable, you find him, he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Oh, a manger, baby Jesus, lying in a manger. It's really a shame that this has become so beautified to our culture, right? A manger is, is, is a, a trough for food to feed animals, right? Um, I have a dog, and her bowl is so disgusting. I, I have to clean it all the time. I, I don't clean it as much as I should. Ryan's looking at me. Um, it's disgusting, right? If you have a dog, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know how it gets so filthy. All she's doing is, is eating food out of it. And it's food I put in there. I didn't, she didn't put anything else in there, I don't think. But this is where Jesus was born. This is where God destined his one and only son to come and be born in. We like to demystify and domesticate this Christmas celebration, but the truth is that this was probably a terrible night for Mary and Joseph. Absolutely miserable. They were probably saying to themselves, a king, right? Hmm, sure. Okay, the most high, Gabriel, great. Either we it terribly messed up or we're nuts. Either we got this completely wrong or we just messed up big time because this can't be how it's supposed to be. But it was. 
It was exactly how it was supposed to be. Does that astonish you? Have you become numb to that? Does it astonish you that God would be born in this way? The greatest miracle in the history of the world, the eternal Son of God, being born as a man, it happens quietly in a barn in a tiny village in Judea. This moment, heaven and earth are astonished. May we never be anything different. A danger we face in this Advent season is to replace this marvelous, this mysterious work of God with nostalgia and sentimentality. For many, the birth of Jesus, it's cute, it's pageant-like, it's simple. What we must guard against this relentlessly. What is it about the tiny infant, this baby born in a manger, that does anything for you? Does it? The proper emotions and postures in Advent are all but not limited to urgency, readiness, delight, both surprise and trepidation. And paraphrasing Mr. Beaver to Susan and C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he says, safe? What are you talking about? No one said anything about safe here. But he is good. He is king. And does your heart gasp at that and say, how? How, God, would you be made man in such a way? Are you, do you wonder about it? Does God's faithfulness to his people in the outright unnecessary and humility before man that God presents, does it cause you to stand in awe? Does it cause you to want to know him? Does it cause you to long for his return? Does it cause you to want to see and gaze in this face of this one so glorious and majestic yet so humble? So self-sacrificing. How do we expectantly wait for Christ to come? I want to give a word and, and hopefully it catches on to you and you can grab a hold of it. But actively waiting actively wait. By my count, there are, there are 10 recordings of Jesus using the words, stay awake in the Bible. Nine are in the Gospels, one in the book of Revelation. All of them refer to him coming again, and they all denote a type of vigilance. Jesus must have known that the magic of his birth, his life, and death, resurrection, his ascension, that, that would wear off over time. That the days would pass. The scandalous story that would once gripped our hearts and tranced us. It would, it would become simple. We'd become numb to it. We'd forget as we passed our days on this earth that this isn't even our home. That our greatest treasure is nothing here on this earth that could be afforded to us on this earth, but it lies in heaven. Have we forgotten or have we yet to taste and see as Paul tells us in Philippians 3a, indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. If you've forgotten or you have yet to see and taste this goodness, This is precisely why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. Why he promises it to us so that we might be reminded, we might be convicted, we might be brought back and set on course. 
Holy Spirit is a good counselor to us. He offers us times and rhythms such as Advent to be able to reflect, to meditate, to still our hearts, to ask ourselves the questions that are necessary. What would he be speaking to you in this moment today? He came, Jesus came as the Messiah. He will come again as the judge of all the earth. He will set all things right. He will reign and rule over all creation. Paradise will one day be realized again. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, our second and better representative, he's given us a new beginning. He's given us a new start. The wilted flower was planted again and has taken root. It has started in his resurrection. All creation is growing and it's groaning towards that place where it ought to exist. And one day it will blossom and its beauty will be actualized and forever displayed. The hope that was offered in the very first gospel is offered today. It's offered to us today. The same hope. And this hope has a name. It has a face. This face is fixed on you, church. This name has a heart with your name engraved on it has skin with stolen scars, a mind that's thoughtful towards you, words that are prayers for you. The scholars got it right. An individual came. How much we understand his first coming will determine, I believe, how much we care about his second coming. In closing, Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 4, says this, You are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, amen, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. If you would, bow your heads with me. To... um, I want to ask a couple questions. And just, just where you are, just to, to be able to think through these. To sleep, as Paul tells us, is to be morally and spiritually disengaged and living without a consciousness of this coming day. I'm convinced, church, that we do not have time for the things that we spend a large portion of our time on. I also know that I don't always care There are millions of people who will stand before coming judge Jesus and never knowing his name. Never knowing. And he will tell them to depart because he too never knew him. Knew them. So how are you actively waiting for Jesus' return? Are you active, but it looks more like busyness? 
Do you have a heart set on the coming hope that is yours in Christ? Or is your treasure look more like the things of this earth? If so, take a moment and confess it. Repent. Turn to Jesus, your risen Savior and coming Lord. Maybe you're more willing or you're, you're waiting, but it, it looks more like idleness. You're not active. You're just idle. Do you have a clear understanding of what your days and minutes ought to look like? Do you leverage your time to advance the gospel forward? If not, confess it. Repent. Turn to Jesus. You're a risen Savior. You're coming, Lord. Take a moment to do that, and then Micah will instruct us.